0: All right, so we spent the last, like, I don't know, six, seven weeks talking about applications in our cell phones. And these things really are amazing devices. Like, can you imagine uh, trying to describe the things you can do with a smartphone to somebody, like, even 20 years ago? Like, 1984, you got your leg warmers on. Like, can you imagine 1984, you, rocking this thing? Like, you have no idea what to do. And I can do so many things with this. I can stay connected to the internet. I get on the email. Uh, I can check my fantasy team, which is going to dominate. Um, I can order pizza. I can destroy an angry army of, of turtles. Um, I can get a high score in doodle jump. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. I can uh, turn this thing literally into a whoopee cushion. Uh, so sometimes, like, if I'm in Target or something, I'll just shake it. And, you know, I won't, uh, I won't disturb any of you with the details of what that sounds like. But needless to say, my wife is not happy when I do that. Um, I could be a fruit ninja, I can mean, I I tune my guitar, I can make music, uh, it's pretty amazing what I can do. I can use the force, um, it's kind of incredible. And so we are more connected than ever, right? Like most of us carry around smartphones in our pockets, so we're connected to the internet, we can do all sorts of amazing things. Um, but I was reading uh, this article in Psychology Today, and it was, basically the premise was your smartphone is making you dumb. Now. All the people with flip phones are like, yep, see, I told you. <laughs> but basically, this, the, the more that we are connected, the more that we have an opportunity to access information, the, the worse it actually is for us. So we carry around the internet, and here's what happens in these conversations. Like, used to there used to be conversations that were left undecided, right? Like, you'd be arguing about something, you'd be like, no, uh, Vanilla Ice sings that song. And it would be this argument back and forth, and there's really no way to really figure out who sang it. Now, you've always got iPhone guy. I don't like iPhone guy. He's like my little brother. And he he pulls out the iPhone every time there's a disagreement. He's like, hold on, let's look it up. I'm like, no, let's think about it. Let's think about it a little bit. But basically, the premise of this article was that eventually we begin to view this phone as an extension of our brain. So instead of needing to know things like phone numbers, like how to get somewhere, we know that the phone knows it. And so we, we develop this connection with our phone that's sort of weird and speaks of robot apocalypse. I think Siri's going to take over the world. But we are connected. And the more that we are connected, it, it seems the less that we are connected with who we were meant to be. And so um, as we use our smartphones, uh, you know, I encourage you to, to try to memorize a phone number every now and then. Um, Alright, we're going to look in John 15 today. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn over there. John chapter 15. In this passage, Jesus is going to uh, make a statement about who he is. He's going to make a statement uh, concerning... His very nature, and this is one in a series of statements. He says that I am. The following statements, here, he says, "I am the bread of life. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world, the resurrection, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life." These statements in John have become famous both for their uh, the way they fit together the way that they speak to to human need and longing but also for their poetry how beautiful is it i am the resurrection and the life there's so much so much meaning packed into those few words it's poetic in nature and so today we're going to be looking at one of those statements of jesus where he says i am the vine i am the true vine and my father is the gardener now um In this passage, Jesus is going to employ the the imagery that would have been familiar to the people that he's speaking to. In John 15, we are listening in on a conversation. A conversation between Jesus and his closest followers. It starts um, in John chapter 13 when he's washing the disciples' feet. And he's, he's giving this last final discourse, and he talks about the Holy Spirit in 14. He talks about the vine in 15, um, leading up to his concluding prayer, where he prays not only for the disciples, but for everybody that would believe in him. It's a beautiful section of scripture. If you haven't read that, this part of John, I really encourage you to, to jump in there. But we are kind of jumping in on the middle of this conversation. As Jesus tells his disciples that I am the true vine. And he's using imagery that the people would have known. You know, again, this was mostly an agricultural society. Um, And so he's going to talk in terms that they would understand. Now, um, in the Old Testament, when the vine is mentioned, um, it's usually talking about the covenant people of God, which would be the nation of Israel. Now, the only problem with this is it's usually talking about the covenant people of God in not the most sunshiny of terms. Okay, so let's look at Ezekiel chapter 15. I'll show you what I mean.
1: Ezekiel
0: 15, starting in verse 1. God is going to describe Israel as the vine. Ian is going to turn there one page at a time. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man. How is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch on any of the trees in the forest? So he's comparing the wood of a vine to basically the wood of a a tree. And he says, is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? He's like, do we build anything out of vines? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? Verse 4, and after it is thrown on the fire as fuel, and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it useful for anything? If, if it was not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned and it is charred? So Jesus says that I'm the vine. And the disciples get really excited because they know that from their Old Testament that when God talks about the vine, it's about to get really exciting in here. Um, and basically what Ezekiel is saying is, is that, look, the vine, if it's not doing what it's meant to do, is useless. It's fuel for the fire. And so Jesus begins his discourse with this metaphor. And we're going to see how he extends this, how he walks through this. Let's look in 15.1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And so he begins this passage, and he says that I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And so this begins with the foundation of who Jesus is. He hasn't brought us into the equation yet. He's speaking to his disciples, and he's talking about the relationship that takes place between him and the Father. He says that Jesus is the vine, that that as Israel used to represent the covenant people of God, now that is replaced by Jesus, that he is now the vine. And he says that I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So again, it starts with this sort of, trinitarian father-son relationship and we're going to see how he invites us into that verse two he cuts off every branch that does not uh that does excuse me he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit now this gets a little scary right because doesn't that seem like it puts a lot of pressure on you he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit well it's like immediately we're asking the question okay i know i don't want to be cut off so, am I, am I bearing fruit? How do I bear fruit? It seems like it's putting all of the, all of the onus on it, onto us. And it seems a little scary at this point, because we know we don't want to go to the bad place, where things that get cut off and burn sound like they go. But we're going to see how Jesus takes the pressure off, how he alleviates that pressure. Let's look at the second part of verse 2 there. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Um, I have a vine that literally wants to eat my house. Like, I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to come home one day and it's going to have my dog in its tendrils. I'm going to have to fight it off uh, with a sword. Um, but this thing, like, I cannot believe the rate at which it grows, especially this summer as it keeps raining. Um, but it crawls up my house. Um, it, it, it grows, like, through the cracks in the sidewalks. Like, it's it's crazy. Um, and I, I am not the consummate gardener. Um, you know, I, so... There was one time, uh, actually Richard came over to my house and literally this vine is just like like trying to suffocate my house. And he's like, hey dude, you probably should take care of that. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, you probably don't want that growing in between the siding. I was like, oh, okay, uh, so what should we do? And you just, literally you just start pulling it and cutting it. Um, but these things need to be managed. Uh, Courtney and I have these hydrangea bushes. And they grow, um, sometimes in spite of me, uh, beautifully. But we, the, the thing that we know is that once a year, twice a year, we have to take some, some hedge clippers and cut off the, the old dead flowers so that more flowers can grow. I know there's some gardening people in here. You guys are like, duh. Um, but this was a revelation to me. Um, so Jesus is saying that he, he prunes every branch that, that that bears fruit so that it can bear more fruit. And so this this speaks to me of a couple things. First of all, discipline. Uh, we don't like to think of God's discipline. We don't like to think of him uh, harming us in order for us to grow more fruit. Because essentially, what is pruning? Like, you're snipping off all these branches. Like, I I used to be scared that I was sort of messing up the plant, right? But if it's done by a skilled gardener, pruning is the best thing for the plant. It's the thing that makes it able to grow uh, more healthy, to grow uh, more vibrant. And so Jesus says that he prunes the branches. Now, this is not fun sometimes when we're encountered with our sin when we face this uh, situations in our life death of loved ones that god is speaking into those situations and saying that yeah even in this even in this i am good even in this i am here and i'm trying to to discipline you and change you and so he's he's shaping us he's making us into something new but in order to do that sometimes he's got to cut you this is this is not foreign to a surgeon um a surgery uh, in in its essence is is literally stabbing you with an object and going in there and messing around with things right but surgery the point of it is to make you better and that's kind of what jesus is getting at here that as he prunes he is the skilled and and perfect gardener he he only chops off the branches that aren't bearing fruit and so he prunes he disciplines us and also i see in this i see sanctification and he's saying, look, this isn't, this isn't something that's honoring to me. This isn't something that's, that's making you look more like me. And so he's taking those branches that don't look like him, and he's, and he's, he's shaping them. He's cutting them off. And so he says that he prunes so that we can bear more fruit. Um, we're going to talk about what, what it looks like to bear fruit here in just a second. 15.3, he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. He is, he's pruned our hearts by the, by the fact, the announcement that he is king, that he is reigning. Let's look in verse 4. It says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, in this context, he says, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. So, we sh- we have our first sort of answer to that question. What does it look like to bear fruit? Well, remain in him. Well, that's not a super helpful answer, is it? Like, if I told you, if you asked me a question about who God is, I said, you know, just remain in him. You'd be like, okay, we'll do that. That sounds fun. Um, I, I want to look at a couple things about this particular section of, of the passage. The first thing that it says is that, um, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Verse 5, Jesus is announcing the supremacy of his, of his place in our lives. Um, I want to read you a story. It's uh, not really a story. It's more of an editorial uh, from a, 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 an article that I actually received from a friend of mine, Andrew, um, talking about the way that we sort of uh, make ourselves busy in our lives. So I'm going to read you just a couple uh, quick paragraphs here. This is by Tim Kreider. It says, If you live in America in the 21st century... You probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. Anybody? You guys have told me that before, so I know it's you. It is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. We call that a humble brag. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. Well, that's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. It's not as if any of us wants to live like this. It's something we collectively force one another to do. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. Um, Notice it isn't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts in the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. What those people are is not busy, but tired, exhausted, dead on their feet. It's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence he goes on he says our frantic days are really just a hedge against emptiness busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance a hedge against emptiness obviously your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are busy completely booked in demand, every hour of the day. Anybody feel like that was maybe talking to you today? And now, why I read that, why I bring that um, here, is because I think Jesus is, is saying, look, like if you start with all these other things, then you're, you're kind of working for things that ultimately don't matter. Um, so if you define your worth by, by how much you work, if you define your worth by your wealth, or even just by the fact that you can tell somebody that you have a lot to do today, then Jesus is saying you're not starting at the starting point. That you're starting somewhere in the middle, and you're missing the point of all this. Um, Psalm 39. I'm going to turn over there with me. The psalmist is going to say something very similar to this. He starts in verse 4. He says, "...Show me, O Lord, my life's end, and the number of my days." Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about but only in vain. He heaps up wealth not knowing who will get it. Look at what he says in verse 11. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. And so the Bible is constantly pointing us back to this reality that, that if you don't start with Christ as the source, if he is not the, the, the vine that gives water and nutrients and life to the branches, then you're working for nothing. Now, some of you guys might be sitting in here saying, well, Ian, I, I, I work 9 to 5 every day. I, I provide for my family. Like, those are things that I have to do. And I would say, yes, and absolutely. But do you work... Do you work your job as if it has eternal purposes? Do you work your job as if it matters? Or is it just something that you do? Christ is not saying that work or things that aren't churchy or Christian are bad. What he's saying is what you start with. Are you so concerned about showing people how smart you are that you have to to be this excellent at this uh, particular occupation are you so concerned with the stuff that you have that you're always buying things you can't afford or or um, constantly running your family's schedule into the ground so they can play soccer and football and lacrosse and uh, water polo and ride horses? I hear so much that we're so busy, but I think in that we're missing the things that really matter. Now it doesn't mean that everything that doesn't look like church is bad. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is, unless it's about God, unless we put that margin and that time in our families in our own lives for the lord then we're working for nothing c.s lewis is going to say it this way the terrible thing the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self all your wishes and precautions to christ but it is far easier than what we are trying to do instead for what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and yet at the same time be good We are all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. Christ is saying, look, if I'm not the source, then what you do does not matter. Then what you do has no purpose. Um, Basically, you're you're thrown with the wrong hand. Uh, We're going to watch a video that kind of illustrates what it looks like to live a life outside of Christ's purpose, outside of his calling. Let's check this out. It's funny. It's okay. I think I look like Tony Romo, but not quite sure. Now, when we, try to, when we try to operate without God's power in our life, that's essentially what we're doing. We're throwing with the wrong hand. We're trying to be something that we were never intended to be. And so Christ, Christ's answer to how do we bear fruit, how do we do something that matters in our life, is to remain in him. Um, He's going to go on in verse 10. He says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. This is John 15, 10. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So there's something wrapped up in obedience. So what does it mean to remain in God's love? What does that look like? Um, There was a composer in the 20th century. His name was Arnold Schoenberg. Now Arnold um, decided that because he was such a musical genius that he was essentially going to um, completely ignore the foundations of musical theory that he had been taught. Um, he was going to throw out the truth. It was something called, um, we call each note in a, in a musical scale, it's called a tone. And so w- we focus on tonality, things that sound good together, harmony, counterpoint. Um, there's a reason that the songs that you sing, uh, that you hear on the radio, all kind of sound the same. Uh, Because there's something about the patterns, the repeating rhythms, the repeating melody lines that speaks to us. There's something ingrained in the human soul. Now, Arnold, in his wisdom, uh, decided that he was going to ignore all of that. And he's going to create this sort of um, musical category that had nothing to do with the foundations that had been laid before him. Um, So it sounds a little bit like this. Can you unmute that? yo. When you forget all the foundations of music, you get country music. I heard that song yesterday. DC's going to fight me after this. Actually, it's a little more like this. Can you turn that up just a little bit? There's obviously a lot of skill in that. Um, Schoenberg was a genius. He was a musical genius. And he had great skill playing the piano. But the, the problem is, when you start throwing random notes together, it just doesn't sound that good. There are foundations, there are truths that, that have been communicated to us that have been passed down. And so, when I think about what it means to remain in Christ, I think about it in three sort of different avenues that are all working together. None of them are separate from one another. But the first one, uh, the way that we remain in Christ is with our heads, is believing, is his teaching, is, is acknowledging that Christ is, in fact, who he says he is. Now Schoenberg, um, in, in, in musical terms, sort of represents the, the way that the world was moving in the 20th century. Um, we have what's called postmodernism, which questions, which questions basically even the very systems that, that allow us to know that anything is true. So I can look and say that this chair is blue. And a postmodern would say, well, how do you know that? And so you see the problems that this would create. Uh, If if you question even the way that we perceive things, then really can anything be true? And and this is embodied so much in our walks with Christ. I see this go in a couple different ways. Now the first, I'm going to talk to these guys, Um, especially my young people. There is this this sort of uh, movement that says that all truth is equal, that all truth is valid. But the problem with that is, is that all truth is not the same, right? So, if you say that Christ was not the Son of God, that is different than saying he was, in fact, the Son of God. Like, those two things are not equal, and they cannot possibly coexist. Um, and what I see, especially amongst younger Christians, is this idea that, well, yeah, basically, if you do what's good for you, and I do what's good for me, then at the end of the day, we're all, we're all good, Right? And so truth becomes this sort of relative, uh, yeah, whatever whatever works for you, whatever floats your boat. And I think there's something really good in that. Because the, the desire behind that is to live at peace with people. And that is certainly what God is getting at, even in John 15 here. We want to validate every every person. But the beauty of the Bible is that it does validate every person. In Genesis 1.26, it says that, that, that man was created in God's image. The cross says that he died for all. It validates every person. But it does not, in any sense, va- validate everybody's mentality. It does not validate every belief. In fact, it stands in direct contrast to that. And it says that Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And either I am true or, or that is true. But if it's me, then it means these certain things. And so I see amongst young people this sort of, um, we want to kind of, yeah, we want everybody to be cool. And I understand that. Because at its heart, I think it's good. But we have to understand that when we do, when we kind of pick and choose over the, the teachings of Christ, we are operating as a functional deity. We're basically saying that, well, God, I mean, you're not good enough to give me the whole picture of truth. And so I'm going to pick and choose what's, what's good. And so I don't believe that's a sin. You can't tell me that that's wrong. You can't tell me that that's how God is. And God is saying, no, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. And we've seen already that he, he cuts away the branches that are dead. There's no in-between with Christ. You're either dead or you're alive. And so there's this, there's this uh, tendency to sort of be like, yeah, it's good. And, and hear me on this. I'm not saying that we should uh, find people that believe differently than we do and, and, and invalidate their humanity. But I'm saying that it doesn't mean that every view is equal. Now I want to take this to the other extreme. Now on the other side of it, there's this there's this need amongst Christians to defend the truth, and we we all know these people that view themselves as the, the defenders of orthodoxy, um, who have to have to you know point out every inconsistency, every uh, fallacy in other people's lives, and and we feel that we we somehow need to be God's mouthpiece, and this is why politics just gets so so. Because uh, you know, on one very far extreme, the religious right has, has become this thing that's like, you know, I, if they're on my if they're on the same team, I, I don't think I'm on that team. And so sometimes, as Christians, we feel the need to to be God's mouthpiece, to be His defender. But the problem with that is, God never asked us to be His defense attorney. He never asked us to stand up in court and, and point out the the uh, the fallacies and all the other people. What He asked us to be was to be a witness. The only thing he asked us to defend was the powerless, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And sometimes we're so concerned that we can't legislate morality and that America is not a Christian nation anymore. But God's saying, look, Rome was not a Christian nation. And the church exploded. You know, maybe sometimes I think some of us could do well from a little bit of of state persecution, some problems in that. So God is speaking to our head. He's revealing himself to us. John 7.16 says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from Him who sent me. This goes back to what I was saying. like God is, is engaging our head. He's engaging our brains. You don't turn off um, your intellect when you walk into church. You don't turn off your intellect when you, when you converse with other Christians. The more I read the letters of Paul, the more I read the Old Testament, I see how God is, is working in systems. Um, I have friends who study science. Um, who study things like meteorology and psychology, and they can see God working in those systems. And to me, that, that just validates. It gives me so much faith in what God is doing. Uh, there's a man named Francis Collins, who is one of the leading uh, scientists on the Human Genome Project. And he talks about how he, he can answer all these questions rationally, but he, he got to a few questions that he just could not find an answer for. And he says how science, uh, how engaging in the study of DNA, in, in studying the, the genetic code, how that enabled him to, to trust and love God more. There's another gentleman by the name of Peter Hitchens, who, who was a journalist. He, he lived in the USSR. Uh, he lived in places that were, were post-Christian, uh, atheist even. And he says that he saw the, the, the problems there. He saw the, the, the depravity, the evil. And that pointed him to something outside of who God is. God is engaging our heads. He doesn't want to just say, okay, faith is about uh, sort of this uh, disembodied belief. He's saying that no, faith is about a reason. It's about our intellect. Uh, the second way I think that God engages us in remaining, that he speaks to us, is through our actions. What is obedience if it's not action? And again, he says in John 15.10, he says, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love there's something uh, deeply connected about obeying, about doing what he says, and remaining in him. And so what is, what is action if it's not obedience? Truth is embodied just as it was in Christ. Again, I said this when we talked about communion. But Christ didn't just say, here's the truth, here's all the w- rules, if you guys follow these, you'll be cool. He came in flesh and blood. And lived out the truth among us. John 1 says that grace and truth we have seen in the person of Jesus Christ. So, obedience. What do we do with these things that we believe? What do we do with these things that we talk about on Sunday mornings? Our actions. Do we obey Him? Or is it just kind of like this, this sort of intellectual assent? Yeah, I, I believe Christ is... He, he seems good and He seems like a good way to get me to heaven. what John 15 is doing is is taking out the opportunity to ask God, okay God, what's the least I got to do to be cool with you? He's showing that it's either all in or nothing. And so our actions, our obedience to to who Christ has shown himself to be. Um, John 10, 37 and 38, he says, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, Even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus is saying, look, the things that I do are in direct obedience to who God is. And that's such an amazing picture. Um, It doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow less than who God is, but he in joyful obedience obeys God. Um, I've talked about this before, but nobody is honored in my life with my wife if, if, the only reason I clean the house or the only reason I pick up my uh, stuff in the office or the only reason I wash her car is because I'm afraid that Courtney's going to turn into the Hulk if I don't obey her, right? Like, if I fear her, if if my whole relationship with her is about, like, uh, it's not so much about pleasing her, it's about, like, making sure that she doesn't get angry, then nobody's honored in that. Nobody's glorified in that. But if I love my wife and and I know there's things I can do that serve her, that matter to her, that changes that, doesn't it? Like, it's so true to our life with God. Like, if if I want to love God, if I want to honor Him, then obedience is not about, well, God, I guess I can't have any fun today because we're obeying God, right? No. It's about God showing us who He is and us responding to that. So obedience is that. He's going to go on. He's going to say um, in verse let's see verse 11, "I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." We have such a skewed picture of who God is. We think that he's sort of trying to take fun away from us, because we think in our finite and limited minds that we know what will make us happy. And notice here, God is not saying, look, this will make you happy. He's talking about joy, something so much more full and abundant than than the sort of momentary satisfaction we get from little trinkets and toys. God is promising joy in in obedience and fullness. All right, so we obey God. We remain in Him with our head. We believe that Christ is who He's shown us to be. We we, we remain in Him with our actions. We respond to that in truth. And the last thing is, is with our heart. And this is the part that gets sort of uh, far off and ephemeral. Our experience. Jesus models remaining for us in Mark one thirty five. He says, early in the morning, Jesus prayed in a solitary place. This is kind of crazy to me. Because isn't Jesus God? Like, why does he need to pray? Like, who's he praying to? Like, dear Jesus, or me, if you will. But Jesus, on his, during his earthly ministry, is modeling what it looks like. To, to, to live in joyful relationship and intimate connection with God. Um, the disciples are constantly asking, where is Jesus? And he's off praying. He's off in the, the presence of his Father. And our experience, our connection to God, look at John 14, 15 through 21, just right on the um, same page there. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I love this, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. John is showing us what it looks like to have God not only say that, yeah, you're good, you're clean. Not only to say obey me, but to have his presence in our lives. This, this changes everything, because no longer is God far off, no longer has our sin removed him from our uh, presence, but he has come, he has chosen to, to, to live in our midst, and we see this so often, but this is the part, this is the part when you see people struggling with cancer, when you see people struggling with the death of a loved one, this is the part that people can't explain. This is the part that doctors are always looking at in the lives of Christians and saying, what is it? What is it about you that makes you so uh, able to, to, to sort of respond to these terrible circumstances with such um, confidence, with such grace? Francis Collins said the same thing in his book, The Language of God, this the human genome guy. He said he would encounter people who were dealing with these terrible diseases, and it seemed that their faith was strengthening them. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 4. He's writing from the standpoint of being imprisoned, of being beaten, and he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over, given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's saying, look, like all this stuff is enough to kill a man. It's enough to crush us. But because of who God is, because of who he is in our life, it's worth it. Because his presence is here strengthening us, giving us the the faith and the courage that we need to go on. And so God, not only does he speak to our heads and says, yeah, this is, this is the, the way to live. This is the way to be human. Not only does He demand our obedience because He's God and we're not, but also He comes and He lives in our midst. And this is the part that if you've ever been through anything hard, difficult, this is the part that God moves in and you see Him in your life. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no man than this, than the Father that would lay down His Son for His friends. Jesus uses the term friends and I know he's talking to the disciples he's talking with people that have walked with him but that verse is is extended to us today and and what what we've talked about here today is how do we how do we remain in God's love how do we sort of put all these things together none of these things are acting in isolation Jesus says that he has shown us what love is he has shown us who he is by his own actions his own life so that we might be called his friends. Uh, Moses and Abraham in the Old Testament are viewed as God's friends. Um, and they're kind of on, on a varsity level, uh, if, I, if I look at the Old Testament.
1: Um,
0: and God is inviting us into that fellowship. He says, uh, otherwise, in John 15, he says, as, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And so, how do we how do we bear fruit in our lives? How do we do things that matter? We remain in him. For some of us today, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. For some of us today, that, that, that is such a foreign concept, because we don't know, we, we, we feel like, uh, you know, maybe being here today, that, that God's speaking to us, that, that there's a, a, a sort of a, an acknowledgement that we are not what we should be. And God is speaking into that situation, and he's saying, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That, that accepting Jesus for who he is, is, is a part of our becoming uh, part of the vine. For others of us, and I think this applies to most of us in here. When we look at John 15, um, it's really talking to us. Because because there is a, a point of us that says, I, I do this whole Christian thing, but it just doesn't seem like it has any life. It doesn't seem like it has any, like I come here on Sunday mornings and it, you know that's that's good and all. And I go to a small group or whatever that looks like. But, but Christ is saying that, look, if you're connected to me, that you're bearing fruit, that your life is vibrant and abundant. That there are things going on that are bigger than than you can control. We're trusting and believing in Him. And so for many of us, maybe you feel like your faith's been a little bit dead. Like you need to be chopped up and pruned a little bit. And so God is inviting us into that. He's showing us what it means to live for Him, what it means to remain in Him. And so as we do each week, we have an opportunity to respond. Uh, there'll be people over at the cross, if you want to pray, uh, if, if Jesus is speaking into your heart for the first time, we invite you to, to, to take those next steps, to take the step of faith and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of explore this. But for most of us, I think we just need to hear that, you know, maybe we need to, to question how we're remaining in God. What does that look like in our lives? Are we allowing God to speak into our hearts? Are we so cluttered with noise and with busyness and trying to be our own God that we can never sort of comprehend His voice? And so Jesus says that I am the vine, you are the branches. Anything else is less than what God designed. Anything else is not who God made you to be. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord God, we love you. We pray that you uh, can speak into our hearts, God, that you can use your word. God, that you can help us to obey, Father. You can give us faith to trust in you. And so, Father, we ask that you would be glorified, God, that you would be lifted up. God, that you would make your joy complete in us by bearing fruit in our lives, Father. And Lord, we pray that as we sing, God, that it wouldn't just be words. God, it would be glorifying to you. Lord, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. If you have a decision to make, you'd like to talk to somebody, if be people over at the cross, invite you to stand, and we're going to sing to our Lord and Savior.